Pearson is very pleased to sponsor this series of JogPod. Pearson provide a blend of content, curricula, assessment and training to make the teaching and learning of geography at GCSE and A-level more engaging and effective. For more information about our geography qualifications, please visit us at qualls.pearson.com forward slash geography or follow us on Twitter at edxl underscore jog. Hello there and welcome to JobPod. Today it gives me great pleasure to be joined by Professor Alistair Owens, who's Professor of Historical Geography and Head of School at Queen Mary University of London. It, it's going to be a great opportunity to chattering to you today, Alistair. I, I, I had spent a lot of time looking at, uh, at the work that you've done. You're a historical geographer, you're a social and economic historian, you work on 19th and 20th century Britain. It's fascinating stuff. And, and perhaps we won't get on to this, but you're also a member of the A-Level Content Advisory Board, which was a real interesting activity, I'm sure, an interesting exercise. You've got this particular interest in Victorian London, and I've been stalking you on Twitter and looking at your walks through um, <laughs> church graveyards and things like that. Um, and your interests are family and wealth, the historical geographies of home, which is a really interesting take, family and, and the material culture of, of Victorians and the institutional welfare provision in Victorian London. Given that I'm sitting in um, an ex-workhouse in um, what was Victorian Sheffield, that's really interesting too. So well, I'm sure we'll catch up on that, but the main things that you're working on right now are a bit different. Uh, it, it's it's a bit of a break from that list because firstly, there's I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the work you're doing on, on religion and, and the place of religion within the inner city. And secondly, you've just had a real successful bid with your, your colleague, Professor Alison Blunt. She's leading the project, looking at the impacts of COVID-19 on, on people's domestic lives again. So it's home again. It's fascinating stuff. So thank you for joining us today. Great. Well, well thank you very much for, for having me. And actually... Uh, listening to all that reminds me, as um, as we're recording this amidst uh, a pandemic, how lucky, really, uh, I am to be able to do the job that I do. And I guess I've always uh, loved the relative freedom that being an academic geographer offers. And, and the real um, invigorating combination of both teaching and doing research. And also, I think, um, something that hopefully will come out in this podcast, the the really sociable nature of the job. So I'm, I'm definitely not the kind of traditional lone scholar. And, and the best bit of what I do, I think, is, is working with so many other people. And I think actually, you know, to jump straight to geography, that's true of most geographers. We are, we are actually sociable animals and we get to do stuff together that I think, I think matters to people. That, that, that's one of the fascinating things, I think, because you're really interdisciplinary and you've carried out research projects with historians, which is fairly familiar, but you've also worked with economists, financial experts, archaeologists, and you've worked with some London-based universities as well, which we'll come on to later. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, one of the great things about geography as a discipline is that actually we're always looking outside of our discipline. And in that way, you know, we're not like economists who, as far as I can see, often will only talk to other economists. And, and I guess as geographers, we see that the world is a bit more complex than that. So talking to others, uh, seeing things from multiple and different perspectives, I would say is really important. And geographers know that. Geographers really do know that. And I guess one thing, perhaps above anything that I've loved about being a geographer is the intellectual freedom that it offers. So nobody's ever stopped me talking to and indeed working with people from, from other disciplines. And I really think that's key to the way I've sort of learned and developed as a, as a scholar. And for me, again, I've, I've enjoyed um, and benefited hugely from looking actually just beyond the university to working with, with lots of non-academic organisations. And also, I think here, geographers sometimes undersell themselves. They're, they're very good um, at working with non-academic bodies. 
Um, and I'm lucky enough to work in the School of Geography at Queen Mary University of London, which is in the heart of London's East End. And it has a long tradition, actually, of looking outwards to its local communities and, and the wider global city, I guess, of London and, and collaborating with people uh, in those places. And I suppose for me, reflecting my historical interests, uh, most of my collaborative work has been with heritage organisations, so particularly with, with museums um, in London and especially in East London, with whom I've been able to, for example, supervise lots of PhD student projects and then worked on uh, larger research projects in, in partnership. And, and you mentioned briefly in your introduction the success that Alison Blunt, myself and various others have had in securing a grant to do some work looking at the impacts of COVID on people's domestic lives. That's in collaboration with uh, the Museum of the Home in East London, formerly called the Jeffrey Museum, which is one of those heritage organisations that I've worked a lot with over, over a number of years. But it's been really great. So uh, London, of course, is full of great heritage organisations. So I've got collaborations at the moment, for example, with um, the Museum of London, the Victoria and Albert Museum. I'm also working with the Canal and River Trust. Um, I've just finished a collaboration with, with the Bank of England and particularly with their archive. So there's loads of stuff actually in London, particularly, that um, has, has really enriched my career and I've, I've enjoyed being a part of. When I first started the Geographical Association, the first project I was uh, in charge of was, was looking at geography and risk. And it was working with Durham University statisticians and mathematicians. And we wanted to look and pull together uh, schools where the, the maths department and the geography department worked together to look at um, an understanding of the sort of risks involved with uh, with disease and disease spread and patterns they created a fantastic model a computer model uh, where you could infect somebody but you could change all the parameters and you could add in barriers and watch how the disease spread it was a, it was a fascinating comes around goes around project i think we ought to revive it for now <laughs> that sounds great the other thing that i did when i first went to the geographical association and it was you talking about um, collaborations that got me doing this. I just went back to, to read some of the original pieces that were written when geography was not necessarily seen as, a, as an academic subject. I, I found a, a quote from Professor George Darwin, who was Charles's son. And in, I think this was 1886, he said, I can't see how geography, pure and simple, could be made a subject in intellectual training. So there, get that one in your eye. And, <laughs> but then there was another one from Halford Mackinder. I was just randomly looking at this. Alan Parkinson's done something much more structured with all of these early writings. But it's fascinating looking at how people were writing about geography and integrating geography and history together. Mackinder said, what's important is not to send out students with the rudiments of history as such and the rudiments of geography as such in their minds, but to send them out with some sort of orderly conception of the world around them, a sense of proportion and aroused curiosity. I think he could have written that today. Mm. It's, it's just fascinating. Um, and he wrote that just after, well, it was in 1913 when he wrote that, just after the Balkan War. He said, take an event such an event as the colossal event that's taken place in the Balkan Peninsula in the last few weeks. The event springs out the past, has consequences in the future, but to visualise it, you must be able to place it in its geographical surroundings. And that's exactly what your work does with all this. Uh, when we're looking at Victorian London, it places it in a place with real people. And, and that sort of segues really neatly into your research and your recent paper. Because this, that, the one that you've written on faith in the inner city, it's called Faith in the Inner City, Vicarages, Clerical Domesticity and Urban Change Since 1960. Because you start also with a, a, a pretty catastrophic event. You start with the Brixton riots of 1981. And then Archbishop Robert Runsey saying, what's the geography here? It's sort of the the only people who are on the ground in this society are the religious leaders 
And what a fascinating place to start. Yeah, so, so this particular project you're talking about is, is, is a relatively new project that I, I've been working on very recently. And we're interested there in the, the changing inner city in Britain from, from the 1960s through to the present day. And, and you refer that to, to Robert Runcie uh, in 1981, who was then the Archbishop of Canterbury. And he gave a speech in the House of Lords the, the day after the, the unrest, uh, some people call it the riots in, in Brixton. And, and he'd witnessed that because he, you know, he was living in Lambeth Palace and he could see the, the fires and he could hear the blaring sirens um, the night before when the, arrest, the, the unrest happened in Brixton. So he's speaking the next day in the House of Lords and he makes the observation that amongst kind of... Uh, uh, professionals uh, and, and other public servants, Church of England priests are among the few that actually lived within the inner city. And there's another interesting quote that I think brings us back to, to why this is of an interest of mine from several years later, actually, where the journalist Simon Jenkins uh, wrote an article about an East End priest called Kenneth Leach. And again, he was making the point that actually priests are among the few um, professional, if you like, public servants who lived in the inner city through periods of great crisis. So, you know, the early 1980s was a very difficult time in many British inner cities. And, and, he, and he uses this lovely quote where he says that uh, these individuals and the church was wedded to the sheer geography of that inner city. So there they are living amongst uh, those communities. So what we're really interested in is the way in which um, the Church of England, and we're using this as a particular vantage point on, on this question, how um, uh, religious groups, religious leaders, uh, religious professionals responded to the problems of the British inner city in that, in that post-war period. So particularly in the 1980s, this is a time of great deprivation, of unemployment, of social unrest, uh, of crime, of lack of educational opportunity, of racism, of oppression. There's lots going on in, in the inner city at that moment. It, it's radically changing as Britain is experiencing sort of wider uh, structural and political economic changes. So, you know, our question is to ask, well, well how, what was happening on the ground? How were those um, Anglican priests responding to, to that crisis, to that period of change. And we're also interested in bringing that story up to the present. So um, maybe we wouldn't say the inner city was in the same kind of crisis now. There've been other things happening to inner cities that equally we're interested in trying to understand how the Church of England and, and perhaps religious groups more generally have, have, have responded to those very significant shifts. Now, you know, that's not a topic that others have ignored. And in fact, if you think about that moment in the 1980s, um, many of your listeners will perhaps remember a, a report called Faith in the City that was published by the Church of England in 1985. And it, it, was, um, it was deeply critical of the government at that time. So um, the, the historian Eliza Philby described it as one of the most incisive critiques of Thatcherism, which came from, from the church. And for many, this was quite surprising because you know, the church was seen as, as quite conservative, but I think it was Norman Tebbit who, who kind of dismissed it as, as Marxist theology. <laughs> so, so we do know that at the kind of institutional and national level, the church was quite significant in um, enabling and informing debate about what was happening to Britain's inner cities at the time. But if you like, what we're really interested in is the kind of grassroots thing. So what was happening down there in the parishes in inner London and, and Liverpool, which is the, the other focus, actually, of our of our study. So that's why we come back to priests and clergy and why actually we're particularly interested in the, the space of the vicarage. So or the parsonage. So where these um, uh, clergy uh, lived and, you know, from where they enacted their, their urban ministry. So in other words, we're, we're sort of moving the focus away from the church and, and churches at this time. You know, the narrative is that churches are in decline, that if you look inside a church, the number of people uh, sitting in the pews is, is reducing quite dramatically. And, and, and you know, that, that, that's certainly the case. That's what the statistics tell us. But we would argue that that, you know, that's not the only place we need to look to understand how religion was functioning in the inner city and how it was responding to to some of those challenges that occurred. So that's where this idea of um, parochial or 
clerical domesticity comes in, that actually the vicarage is a bit of a focal point within the inner city for various um, forms of intervention, uh, ways of trying to address some of those challenges. And, um, and uh, something I'll, I'll, I'll introduce here is that I grew up in a vicarage, so I have some first-hand experience of this, but, you know, vivid memories of of people coming to the front door in need of help. So wanting food or money, uh, you know, just a cup of tea and a sandwich sometimes. Uh, a vicarage being a place of refuge for people who were, were facing various forms of abuse. Um, a vicarage is a site where people came along um, to, to, to try and, you know, address issues, talk about issues, organize. So in some ways, really at the center of a form of, of Anglican ministry that was very outward looking towards the parish and that was, really keen to do something to support those people at that time who were, were in great need. I mean, there is another side to it. And, and, and to, you know, to be critical about this, we, we don't want to simply paint um, the Church of England and its priests as heroes within this um, period of, of dramatic change. Um, there are arguments about the extent to which, for example, the church um, was welcoming of new migrant communities in, in the inner cities. Uh, and we know that many of those migrants who came to Britain's inner cities were, were, were deeply religious people, but they weren't always welcome in Anglican churches. So that's another theme that we're quite interested in, the politics of race, I guess, in, in this period and the extent to which the church um, was a progressive voice in those debates or in some senses where, where it may have been complicit with, with forms of oppression. A debate that actually is still very li um, alive in, in the Church of England right now. I wonder if I've used the wrong term, actually, because I said at the beginning, I said the Brixton riots, and you've been very careful to not use that word. And then I thought, as I was, as you were speaking, I thought, well, that's a blooming motive term that I've just fired out. And it implies certain things that, that, that you've studiously just avoided there. Yeah, I mean, there is, there is as you might imagine, a debate about, about the various, if we call them riots, there were various of those that, that occurred in in Britain, in the inner cities in the 1980s. So we're also very interested in what was happening in Liverpool. So people will have heard the phrase Toxteth riots, but um, you know, riot is a rather emotive word and, mm. and it became part of a sort of media discourse around those forms of unrest and protest that happened at that time. So yes, I sort of deliberately tried to avoid using that particular label, recognizing that, you know, that the causes of that unrest are very complex and that word riot might, might be inappropriate in terms of describing what people were, were involved in at that moment, those conflicts. Yes, I've ticked myself off a little bit for using that. I, I should have thought a little bit more before I threw that one out. And, and I can understand what you're saying about um, different views on the same religion not being necessarily welcome. It's when I was young, if, if people had started clapping and singing in our church, we'd have been we'd have been frowned upon greatly. It was it was very quiet and very serious, and nobody smiled. Honestly, I don't remember anyone smiling. So it's not surprising <laughs> that um, a different view doesn't uh, quite necessarily fit with the with some of the more conservative elements of. Um, and I mean, conservative with a small c elements of the church. You've written about the post-16 period being a time of decline uh, and, and crisis for both the inner city, it just as the inner city, but also Christian religion. But you also then quite positively talk about um, a time of new beginnings and transformation. So what do you mean by that Would you? with the way that you've taken that view? Yeah, so there is, um, there is this narrative, um, particularly amongst historians, actually, that um, the post-war period is a sort of age of secularisation. So the established church is in, in decline. The Church of England is decline according to that narrative. And as I said previously, I mean, I think there is evidence that that, that, that is perhaps happening and that Britain was becoming, in some senses, a, a more secular society. But actually, um, that sort of narrative has been complicated, including actually by the work of a number of geographers, uh, people like Paul Cloak down in um, Exeter, um, John May, who's one of my colleagues at, at Queen Mary, who, who've been looking, for example, at the significance of what they call post-secular welfare 
in cities in, in recent decades. So actually the way in which religion, including um, Christianity and including the Church of England, has often been at the forefront of trying to provide forms of welfare, um, you know, shelters for homeless people, for example. Lots of food banks are connected with churches, with mosques, with other um, places of worship. So actually, um, religion has been a, a very active and often very progressive force in trying to address some of the challenges of inner cities in, in more recent years. So in some senses, we're trying to uh, nuance that narrative of, of, of secularization and, and point to, again, point to the significance of what's happening within uh, communities, within localities in, in cities, rather than simply what's going on in churches. So that's, I think, a more sort of positive argument. And, and I think the other point to make, and, and this is less in the scope of our project, but certainly other geographers have been exploring this question, including a former colleague of mine, Olivia Sheringham, who's at um, Birkbeck in London, looking at um, the, the, the growth of other Christian and other um, religious groups in inner cities over that period, particularly associated with the arrival of migrant communities. So you think of some of the Pentecostal churches, for example, here in East London, where I live, they have huge congregations, uh, you know, very lively, lots of people um, attending forms of worship. So, so that idea that religion and Christianity is, is in decline certainly needs nuancing. Uh, it's not the reality. And in some parts of, of uh, UK cities, you'll find that actually religion of various kinds, including Christianity, is growing. So that, that would be the first thing. And I suppose in terms of the, the inner city, there is, um, if you think about the post-war period, then the nature of change in the inner city, um, well, lots has happened. So post-war period, it was often about uh, reconstruction post-war. Uh, you then end up with a period of, of perhaps relative prosperity. And then by the 1970s and through the 1980s, there's this fairly prolonged period of decline in the inner city. There's a kind of a flight of away from the inner city by some populations moving out to the suburbs, all, you know, kind of classic geographical uh, stories, really, the sort of counter-urbanisation and suburbanisation uh, literatures. Um, so, 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 so that's happening. We know, um, you know, the impacts of deindustrialization, of the rise of a post-industrial economy. And this is a kind of political economic geography I sort of grew up on, as it were, um, in, in my school years and my degree years. So reading lots of Dory Massey and um, Ray Hudson and people like that who talked about those large structural economic changes that reshaped Britain um, in the 1970s, 80s, um, and, you know, indeed into the 1990s. So looking at that period of decline that happens over that, um, over those years, and then I suppose, and the periodization might be contested, but since the 1990s, a sort of uh, the rebirth of the inner city to some extent, and, you know, the trends towards gentrification, regeneration. Um, now the inner city is a place where people want to live. And I'm, I'm in Hackney in East London, and I mean, that's a really textbook case of a, a part of the inner city that, that's really transformed over the last 40 or so years. You know, problematically at times, because those processes of renewal and regeneration and gentrification, as lots of geographers have pointed out, have remade the inner city, um, but actually have often caused populations to have to move away. So those processes of, of displacement that are so well documented by you know, scholars like Loretta Lees, for example, so um, there's so much going on in the inner city over that period. But I just think that focusing on religion, and in our case specifically, the Church of England, gives us a really interesting vantage point at which to try and understand those different changes and, and how religion has played a role in, in responding to them. The changes in the inner city are not necessarily beneficial for everybody. What yeah. you've done, though, you... Because the context of what you've set up is, is, is a classic sort of geographical lens, a telephoto lens, because the context of your research is, is an exploration scale, really. Mm. You start with a home, and then you look at its place in the inner city. But then within that framework of, of religion, it's, it's classic geographical moving in and out and, and looking at the, how things can be seen in different perspectives. 
Yeah, that's right. And I think, I mean, one thing that perhaps has been a thread throughout my career, and you, you mentioned the very many different things I've, I've tried to research um, in, in what I've been doing so far. One of the things that is a constant is that interest in, in the home, or if you like, the scale of, of, of what we think of as home, of family. Um, but when we think of home, you know, we tend to think about the kind of four walls that those of us who are fortunate enough to have have shelter um, live within. And, and, and of course, that's what I also mean by home. But recent work on the geographies of home has, has, has demonstrated that, that home, uh, to go back to your point, exists at several scales. And, you know, we make a home in the city. Um, so we, we may live in a house, but actually how we feel at home is to do with the place we're located in and the kind of relationships we form with within that place. So we, we, we develop a sense of belonging, to use a slightly different formulation, within a particular locality or place. Um, and, that, and that's partly where the, 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 the Vickers and the Inner City project uh, is headed. But also, you know, people's sense of home, as my, my colleague Alison Blunt has, has so clearly and ably demonstrated, ranges far beyond um, four walls, far beyond your immediate locality, maybe within the city, but people's sense of who they are and where they come from and where home is can be truly global, and particularly in a, in a more globalised world and in a, a city like London, which is, you know, is a migrant city. So that, that sense of, of, of identity is transnational. It reaches across continents. And um, in contemporary period, and maybe particularly during COVID, and maybe this is a theme that we will be exploring in our project about the impact of COVID on people's domestic lives, we, we can sort of mediate difference using technology so that we can, we can talk on Zoom or Teams or we can use WhatsApp and whatever, and we can be home in another country alongside people who are our family very easily. So that sense of where you are and where home is, is, is very um, elastic, particularly um, right now at this moment, I think, in a very globalised world, but also equally in this world where most of us are all locked down and, and trying to sustain those relationships with, with those who matter to us. I suppose in that sense, for some people, that's the, the sense of safety, the sense of caring, the sense of, um, of where they feel looked after becomes then the vicarage, perhaps not their own home, because there are issues perhaps at home. So they go somewhere else for that sort of support and, um, and gentle nurturing, if you like. Yeah, I think so. And that's one thing that we we want to draw out. The research we've been doing so far and, and we plan to do more of is that we, we spent a lot of time actually interviewing and talking to particularly clergy within these, these parishes and, and their families uh, to think about how that particular space of the vicarage could be used as a site for refuge, uh, as a place where people could go you know, when they're in at their most desperate hour. And they the people we've been talking to have given us lots of interesting examples of, of where that happened, including, you know, providing people in the vicarage with temporary accommodation, a place to sleep when, when things were at, were, were at their worst for that individual. And there's some interesting issues there, a particular set of issues we're quite interested in for clergy families and for priests and how they negotiate a home um, a vicarage, a parsonage, which actually is not private in the sense of most homes being private, that actually it is also sort of public that people come there and they expect that there will be some refuge. Um, it's expected that the vicarage will be used for meetings, for you know, church-related activities. And I know that lots of clergy families find negotiating that public-private thing actually quite difficult. Um, so that's something we're trying to tease out there. And also, I mean, there's some really quite serious um, issues to do with security there, too, because occasionally um, people who might visit the vicarage um, may be somewhat hostile. And, and there are certainly um, tragic cases of um, priests being injured and, in fact, murdered in the 1990s from a hostile caller and where things, things, went, things went badly. So one of the things we want to do is to work with the Church of England to actually think more about that question. That's something they're very concerned about and providing security for uh, vicarage inhabitants, um, as well as at the same time, balancing that with the church still being somewhere where people can go to when, when they're in need, when, when they're trying to escape um, forms of um, abuse or oppression within their own homes. So that, mm. that, that's, that's a really important theme. And you have widened this out, haven't you? Because you, you've written about geographers beginning to trace interfaith 
networks as well. So between Christians and Muslims and the Jewish community. Yeah. So, I mean, one thing we're quite conscious of is that within our project, we've decided to look at the established Church of England. We're looking at Christianity and its role uh, within the city, uh, within the inner city at this time. And I think it's obviously important to recognise that there there are other faiths. And one of the themes that's perhaps significant in this period is the growing dialogue between different faiths in the inner city. And particularly, um, I, I had a PhD student Emily Harris, who recently was looking at interfaith dialogue in in contemporary London, looking at the relationships, especially between Muslim, Christian and um, Jewish groups. And in our project, too, we're we're thinking about the way in which um, Anglican priests uh, were engaged in those sorts of networks and actually worked together with other faith groups in trying to address some of the problems of the inner city. And that and that's something we see still, you know, we see perhaps even more of today in that 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 sort of post secular welfare that I was talking about earlier on that many geographers have been involved researching is often about um, these alliances between different faith and indeed non faith groups too coming together um, with a sense that, you know, collectively they can do something for the good of people who are deprived or who suffer in some way within these contexts. It so sort think, of addresses the othering, doesn't it, as well? So these groups that we don't necessarily speak to, it's very easy to other those groups. Once you've got them talking like that, then oh, they're exactly the same as we are. Just, hey, what, a, what a surprise, <laughs> that sort of reaction. Yeah, and I think there's something there too, that um, particularly where you've got interfaith dialogues, that actually the fact that um, people have a faith that that in itself is a is a shared experience and actually becomes a platform for people to understand each other's faiths. So if there is a sort of um, a sense that religion can be a, a force that is is not very progressive, that it perhaps is complicit in that othering of of people who are not like you, then the interfaith dialogue that we can see evidence of happening within the inner city at this time is something that begins to break that down, to begin to to recognise that yes, there's difference, but also people share much in common, and um, there there are particular struggles and issues that people want to organise together in order to try to address. Hmm. Let's talk about the other thing we've got all in common then, because I'd like to talk to you about your project Stay at Home, Rethinking the Domestic during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now, this is led by Professor Alison Blunt, but it's it's quite some collaboration, isn't it? Yeah, so it, it, it is. And, you know, Alison Blunt is, is really wonderful at leading kind of large, quite complicated uh, collaborative projects. So, um, we're working, first of all, with other academics uh, um, at, at the University of Liverpool. So Cathy Burrell and Georgina Enfield, both of whom are geographers with um, Olivia Sheringham, who's at Birkbeck, and then Alison and I at Queen Mary. And, and then we have um, a, a, quite a large number. I think it's four postdoctoral researchers involved in different strands of this project based in London and based in Liverpool. And then we're also collaborating with um, museums. I mentioned that earlier on. So the Museum of the Home in East London and then also National Museums Liverpool up in Liverpool, who they run several museums up there. Wonderful museums, worth a visit if you've never been. And then um, finally, we're also collaborating with the Royal Geographical Society with the Institute of British Geographers, particularly around um, uh, their kind of schools programme, because a strand of this uh, research is interested in children's experiences of home. Uh, during COVID, and that's a bit of the research being led by our colleagues up in in Liverpool. But the um, so that's the collaboration. There's lots of people involved, and I mean the rationale for the project. I hope is is fairly obvious, as we're all right now sat in our homes mostly um, because we've been told to stay home, and you know not for the first time. We're recording this in in early January in 2021 when we're under these restrictions. Um, so it seems right to ask the question, well, um, how has COVID changed our experiences of home, our sense of, of the domestic? Well, a lot of the public discourse has actually been about the effects of COVID on things outside the home. So about you know, the economy, the city and those sorts of things. But actually, so many people have retreated to their homes that we need to do some serious academic work to understand um, the, the experiences of that. And um, 
that's what this project really is, is trying to do from a sort of geographical social science perspective with all those partners. And now one great starting point actually, and why we're collaborating with Museum of Home in East London, is that they already began earlier during the pandemic, a project where they were collecting people's experiences of stay home. So their testimony um, around what it's been like for them to reorient their lives around, around the domestic. Um, and that's a wonderfully rich archive already of people's experiences and they've you know, submitted pictures and, and bits of film and sound and that kind of thing that is one of our sort of sources of data, if you like, to understand those experiences. But we're also going to be talking to lots of other groups of people um, about their experiences of, of life under lockdown at home, um, where, as I say, we've got a strand of the research which is, is looking at children's experiences of being at home. So, you know, there's homeschooling, of course, but there's, you know, how do you interact with your friends at while well, you're told to stay at home and you can't actually go and see them physically. So there's, there's lots there that's interesting. And actually, we're going to try and use some quite creative methods working with the Royal Geographical Society to get at children's experiences of, of what it's like to, to live in, in that kind of lockdown situation. I mean, another thing to go back to one we've talked a lot about already is religion. So actually, um, people's religious lives are, are both private and, and public. People go to places to worship. And again, all that's been... Uh, restricted by by the lockdown so so how have people maintained that sense of religious belief and identity while being at home so we feel there's a, a really rich terrain there that that needs exploring that needs documenting and and that's what um what we're looking forward to doing we've literally just started the project um beginning in january so it's it's only just got going i wonder how many schools have, have taken that already on board and, and uh asking their students what their experiences are. It's, it would be really interesting, but really challenging because some of the, some of the responses be really difficult. Um, particularly if, if, if just a, a geography teacher decides to do it because there's a whole school wide issue here that some, some things will come out from students finding it very difficult, very challenging and, uh, and very upsetting I'd have thought for some of them. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I, I, we're conscious of that in universities, and I'm, I'm sure people who teach geography in schools will be very conscious of that too, that um, at the moment uh, our students are working in a very wide range of situations. So in some cases it, it's comfortable and they've got good Wi-Fi and they've got their own room and a desk and all those kind of things, which means they can continue to be a student. And then, you know, we've many situations where students living in very difficult circumstances, sharing rooms, uh, no IT equipment, no Wi-Fi, um, living on top of one another, where it's almost impossible, of course, to, to study and um, or, or even, you know, to, to maintain good mental health mm. living in that sort of situation. So you know, I, I don't really need to, you know, an audience, a key audience here will be teachers and other academics. I think we all understand that. And I think we're all grappling with ways of trying to to address it. So it, it's, it's revealed to us those sorts of inequalities that are, are, are there, but are not always that visible. So I think the pandemic has, has shone a light on, on, on some of those things. And then, of course, yes, there are there are other things that we know are, are particular issues as people have stayed home. So rising domestic abuse, for example is something that, that that's come out and that that will be another theme in our project to be to be alert to some of those things as well as to i suppose as well as to 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 recognize that some people have found pleasure in in spending more time at home and actually that moving home may have longer term consequences in terms of how people will organize their lives in their future you know people say they're going to do more work from home even when all these restrictions might hopefully sometime go away and um, you know you see lots of people posting on social media um, their creative endeavors at home so all their cooking and their um, their knitting and and their gardening and all those kinds of things so you are seeing um, a re-engagement with things that we think of as domestic uh, that I think is really interesting and that we want to to research more. I've never heard of the museum of home so I admit it now I put my hand up, <laughs> but it sounds fascinating. It's closed, isn't it? It's had a two-year refurb, hasn't it? So yeah, that's right. So they, yeah, they. they um, I mean, it, I, I've been working with them for sort of fifteen years, and they they used to be called the Jeffrey Museum. So some people may have heard 
uh, of them under that name, but they've rebranded as the Museum of the Home. And, and the concept is that the, the museum is in some very beautiful um, old almshouses. And, and traditionally the museum was basically a series of room displays at different periods from the, the 16th century right through to the present. And, and its premise was to sort of represent a typical middle-class London home at each of those periods. Now it's had a, it's had a huge refurb um, courtesy or largely courtesy of um, the Heritage Lottery Fund or the National Heritage Lottery uh, Fund. And um, that has meant that the museum has both quite dramatically expanded. There's been lots of um, remodeling of space and, and so on. But also, I suppose, intellectually has also shifted as well. So it wants to think about home in a variety of different ways and for a wider range of audiences. So rather than just be a museum about London middle class homes, it's now trying to tease out uh, the diversity of homes in London, reflecting the diversity of its population. Uh, and in part, the kind of collaboration that we've been doing with the museum over the last 10, 15 years has been about working with them on that agenda to try and broaden that sense of what home is for a, a wider range of people. So well worth a visit. It's planning to reopen later in the spring. And so when it's um, when it's possible for people to get out again, then it, it's a wonderful resource. And obviously in being about a particular space that's so significant to people's lives will be really of interest to lots of geographers. Some museums, when they do that sort of thing, they, they put stuff in a room and you get a bit of a feel, but it, it's not the same... I don't think it's as some of the work that you've you've also explored. There's an, there's another paper I read of yours, which which was about people and things on the move, yeah, um, and where you looked at domestic material culture and and poverty and mobility and, and getting a feel for the people themselves, not just their artifacts, but them and how they how they interact with that stuff, which is sometimes more difficult when you're wandering through a room because you're you're not getting a feel for how the people really use that stuff. And it, it was fascinating. Some of the things you talk about where, where people don't necessarily have these possessions so much for them, when they, when they flit, they sometimes leave the stuff behind because they can't afford massive... Re anyway, fascinating stuff. So tell us a bit about the, that, the work that you've done there. Yeah, so that was um, that was a few years ago, and that um, we've been talking a lot about um, the current period and the, the later twentieth century. But that was a project focused on the Victorian period and focused on Victorian London. And there, it was another partnership, another collaboration, where I was fortunate fortunate enough to work with Museum of London Archaeology. And Museum of London Archaeology are professional archaeological organisation that carry out excavations mainly on London sites. And there is a huge warehouse in Shoreditch in East London, which contains um, the artefacts that have been dug up from excavations that Museum of London Archaeology have undertaken over the past sort of 50 or so years. And it's this huge building with over a million boxes of stuff that they've dug up from these excavations. And what I was particularly interested in working with a colleague there called Nigel Jeffries was to try and understand um, what objects excavated from the Victorian period might tell us about people's domestic lives. And the reason for doing that is that um, in trying to understand the domestic lives of poor people in the past, there often isn't very much evidence to do that. Um, so you can, you can read about what um, middle class reformers thought about poor people's domestic lives. You can read about what journalists thought about poor people's domestic lives. Um, but actually that comes from a particular perspective, often a kind of moralizing and slightly negative perspective. So if you turn to the archeology, span you've got a very different kind of evidence for trying to understand people's everyday lives. We've got in the archeology, span basically what we've got there is the stuff that people threw away. So the stuff that people at some point decided was no longer of value to them. And in this particular case, um, what was excavated was um, the site of some privies, some effectively toilets in, in the backyards of these uh, poor Victorian houses in the east end of London, right next to the docks down in Limehouse. So they, the, that particular project was to, to look at all those objects that were thrown away. And, it, you know, it was mostly 
bits of broken crockery and cutlery, um, cleaning objects, a few toys, all sorts of stuff that, you know, was mostly broken. So it ended up um, in the bin or in the privy. Just to ask the question, well, what does that tell us about poor people's lives that we may not know or may be different from what we can see from other kinds of sources like newspaper articles or investigations by social reformers? And obviously what it brings into view is, is the kind of intimacy of people's everyday existence. It, it tells us about, to some extent, the kind of struggles that people faced in, in making a kind of everyday living. It tells us about things like domestic labour, and much of the domestic labour that was performed in the 19th century, of course, was done by, by women. So it tells us about, gives us insights into women's lives in the way that perhaps some other historical sources don't. So um, I spent a lot of time enjoying myself trying to think about actually what that material culture reveals to us about, about the lives and, and the struggles of poorer people. And one of the themes you mentioned actually that came out from that work was was the significance of mobility. So it was very clear when we're looking at these objects that have been thrown away that they, they probably belong to different people, different groups of people who in that part of Victorian London were very mobile. They were moving on. They were, in some cases, they were jumping on ships and sailing to India or, or wherever it might be um, because they, they were you know, employed by the East India Company or something like that. In other cases, they just moved around in London a lot because that was a strategy for coping with poverty. You could upsize and downsize um, according to you know, how things were going for you. So people were, were often on the move, as, as lots of geographers have actually written about. And I think this material culture tells us, gives us some more insights into that precarity that lots of poor people faced, while also you know, their attempts to, to kind of make a living, to get by. Um, yeah, tell you, they, the things there tell you about how people attempted to have moments of relaxation and leisure. So evidence of drinking and smoking and yeah, all sorts of things like that, children's toys, children playing in the street. So it's, 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 really, it, it, it's really fascinating research that gives you those glimpses into people's domestic worlds that are not always possible from other kinds of historical sources. Being right where it was on the docks, it, it, it's global and local as well, isn't it? As you say, people were jumping onto ships and then bringing things back. So it was, um, it was quite a, an area of, of lots of influences. It was, yeah. And um, yeah, you get glimpses of that. And, and, you know, we think of London today as being very global, but we forget that in the 19th century, it was also a very international city. I mean, one of the objects that uh, intrigued me that we found was um, a glass rolling pin or a broken glass rolling pin that we found when we were doing this, this work. And um, we thought first it was just a rolling pin, obviously for baking, but actually we did a bit of research because this rolling pin we could see had some engraving on it. And, and we found um, out after doing this research that these rolling pins were, were, were not really a, a kind of functional object used for baking, but instead they were an object that you hang above your fireplace. And you would do that when uh, the man of the house had gone to sea and had um, gone off on some long voyage and was perhaps not expected back for months. So it was a tradition that you hung this um, rolling pin, which would have a sort of inscription on it, like, you know, love you forever or something like that, <laughs> as a token of, of, of affection. Um, however, there, there were, there's a sort of super, superstition surrounding these objects that if that rolling pin was to fall and break, then that meant, sadly, that your loved one had perished at sea or, or perhaps even lost to the arms of another woman was the other, the other story that, that came along with that. So we, we do wonder what befell this um, poor inhabitant of this house in Limehouse in East London. So this rolling pin was broken in the privy. So we wonder whether something terrible might have happened. But, you know, it does speak to the kind of global mobility of, of people at that particular moment in that community where there's sort of a, a big churn of people. So, yes, and there's lots of fascinating it, it, it pictures them in a different way from... But it was, it was reading what you'd written that pointed me back to Charles Booth's map uh, of London poverty, yeah. because this area is described... It's coloured in black, isn't it? That's and correct, yeah. So there's these people who are, who are laughing and loving and putting up rolling pins, and they're described on the map, on the index and the key, as lowest class vicious semi-criminal 
Oh yeah. dear. <laughs> exactly. So one of the things we wanted to try to do is, is to, to, to move beyond that kind of rhetoric that was so pervasive. Um, you know, Charles Booth was, was, was a remarkable um, social reformer and uh, proto-sociologist, proto-urban geographer, really, uh, who, who, most famous for his maps, his poverty maps of, of, of London, and, and people probably will know of those, and they can be, be found on the Alice Library website, if not, but also conducted all sorts of very detailed research into the lives of, of poor people living at that time. And in some ways, he was more progressive than many, but, you know, that, that kind of um, classification of people into those particular social classes, and black was the, the lowest you could be, and his maps, of course, are colour-coded, so black and blue is, is lower class, and then you've got um, pinks and reds, which means sort of middle class, and then gold, which means upper class. And uh, you have to head to West London, of course, to find any golden streets. But this street in, in the East End was black. So we wanted to sort of rescue some of those people from, 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 that, from that history, really. And, and as you say, to, to give, give, them, give them voice and to, to, to say something about their lives. So, so yes, that was the, that was the context. Well, we started this chatter with me using an emotive term, which perhaps I shouldn't have done. And we finished with Charles Booth using an emotive term <laughs> that I think he might have thought through um, and used a, a slightly less damning term than that. <laughs> That's absolutely fascinating. Again, talking to you, Alistair. Thank you very much for, for joining me today. I, 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 I love preparing for this, and it's been a wonderful listening to you talking about it today academics who get enthused about their work it's just a thrill so thank you very much well thank you so much john as well i've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it and um and, and sharing some of my experiences and, and i'd like to emphasize again the way in which my career has been made by working with others so so lots of what i've been able to do has been through collaboration with with other academics with professionals in museums and indeed you mentioned it and um, the lcap uh, work i did a few years ago as well, also working with teachers. And, you know, one of the things I think is really great about the GA is the way in which it can enable those dialogues between geographical enthusiasts everywhere, whether that's in primary schools, secondary schools, uh, in universities, and of course, way beyond that too. So, so thank you for giving me this opportunity. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening to today's JogPod. During these challenging times, don't forget the wealth of resources available on the GA website, geography.org.uk including our teaching resources, which are currently free to access for all. You might also want to look at our Geography from Home section, which aims to support teachers, parents and guardians whilst children and young people are learning from home. There's also a growing selection of web inquiries, online events and quizzes all available for free on our new sister site, geographyeducationonline.org.